Well, you might want to keep that open and let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these words of yours, and we pray that this morning uh, you'll help us think about you and how we can be impressed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, uh, I'm not much of an art connoisseur. I don't know if anyone here judges themselves something of an art officiando. Anyone think they know much about art? Okay, yeah, okay, Ben, all right, fair. Um, well, there's a, an exhibit that, um, you can call me ignorant about art if you like, but some things in the art field are deemed impressive that I don't find particularly impressive. Take, for example, this artwork entitled Comedian, all right? Um, it's an original artwork by an Italian bloke called Maruzio Catalan. Anyone heard of it before? Yes, a few have. Um, yeah, it was um, sold recently for $120,000, um, to which a second edition of the artwork was made, which also sold for 120000 A third edition was put on sale, and this on the gallery thought, let's push our odds, we'll go for one fifty k And they sold it for 150000 at that bargain price. Emmanuel Paraton, speaking for the gallery, said, we already sold it. It's a miracle. I don't know how this happened. Me neither, mate. Um, but... Um, this is the artwork called Comedian, and uh, this is some avid art fans taking a picture of it, because really there's quite a lot to see there, isn't there? There's a banana duct tape to a wall. But the gallery and the artisan says, this is not a joke, despite the title, and three buyers think the same way, it's not a joke. Apparently the artist spent a lot of time on this work. He took a banana with him everywhere. He held it against different shades of wall in different angles. The duct tape angle had to be just right, he said. He'd tape it on places like his hotel room wall just to make sure he got it right. He did consider, he said, using a fake banana, but he opted against such a thoughtless act and used a real banana instead. Now, who here is buying 120000 spending that on uh, on this artwork entitled Comedian? Anyone? No? Well, as a little interlude here, um, there's a, a performance artist named David Detuna, and he came to see the artwork entitled Comedian, and, um, well, he was browsing around the gallery, and he felt a bit hungry, and he did peel comedian off the wall and eat said banana, which caused no amount of outrage in the... Um, I'm not making this up. This really happened, okay? It caused no amount of outrage in the art gallery, and um, they've since replaced the banana swiftly and deployed guards to guard the precious exhibits. But you might wonder, looking at Comedian, how did they settle on that price tag of $120,000 for this? How did they decide that's what it would be worth? The artist, this is the answer, the artist and the gallery discussed it and they said, we don't want to make the price trivial and insignificant, but we don't want to be outlandish either. So 120 grand it is. Okay, honest opinions now, except for Ben, we'll come to him last. Who finds that an impressive work of art? The angle of the banana and the duct tape. Anyone? Ben? No, even Ben, who loves art. <laughs> he doesn't find it impressive. Thank goodness. So he can safely say it's not impressive. But someone thought it was. Um, but I'm willing to speculate it's probably worth more than any art that any of us sitting here today have ever sold. That's probably a fair thing. Um, board, take a tape of banana to the wall, sell it. All right. Who, what is more impressive of these two options I'm going to show you, okay? We have two runners here. We have Usain Bolt and we have Matt Shervington. Which is more impressive? Bolt? Correct. Uh, some presidents of the United States. We have the famous Rushmore Monument and we have the Don. Uh, <laughs> which is more impressive? Hands up for the Don. Oh, Noah. Okay. Hands up for Mount Rushmore. 
Probably fair, isn't it? Okay. I've got two buildings for you. I've got Marina Bay Sands in Singapore, okay? And I have a local building, the UTS building. Which is the more impressive? No, Alex can't answer. Anyone else want to answer? Which is more impressive? Nigel? Where's Nigel? Which is more impressive? Marina Bay Sands, fair enough, okay. Um, winner. Fair, yeah, and even you don't find it impressive. As an architect, you were sickened by going there. Okay, Winifred Falls in uh, Loftus or Niagara Falls? More impressive? Niagara Falls? And last but not least, this one's a bit subjective, but the successful manager or the Maccas shift manager? More successful? Hands up, hands up for Maccas. I, I wager your, um, your outgunned on the general consensus in the world, Tracy, but fair, okay, you can go for what you want there. Now, I presented some things to you which are fairly sharply contrasted, didn't I? I think there'd be a reasonable consensus in the world we live in about which was more impressive and which was less impressive, okay? Without doubt, our world holds a certain view of things. But here we are today, we're followers of God, right? How do we talk about what we find impressive? Is it right to go along with the world's view of things? Should we just say that's what the world thinks is impressive? Therefore, we should view it the same way. Because sometimes the world does view things the way God intends. But other times it's quite rare. Most of the time it's not, not true. How do we decide what is actually impressive in life? And if it's not the way the world decides, then what do we do with that on a daily basis? That's the challenge before us this morning as we come to a rather large chunk of judges. Um, we're picking up the story of Gideon. Um, you might remember Gideon. He was hiding in a wine vat and God called him to, to lead the people. Gideon was a bit hesitant a bit dubious, but we saw him at the end of last week going against his family even, tearing down the altars of false worship they had erected and standing up and saying, okay, I follow God. We pick it up in chapter 6, verse 33 this morning. Have a look there. We'll just skim over this bit here. We see there, now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Okay, so there's the bad guys. They're camping in the valley. And Midian sounds the trumpet in verse 36, and the people of Israel from the tribes of Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, that's these ones up here, right? They all come together, and they say, right, we're going to fight Gideon. Let's go. But as that's happening, Gideon encounters a moment of doubt. Verse 36, then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. He's got some doubt. He puts the the sheep's wool on the ground. And he says, if you do this thing, God, then I'll know. And sure enough, there's dew on the fleece alone, and the ground is dry. And so what does Gideon say? Yeah, he says, oh, great, I should go. No, he says, oh... Let's do it the other way around now, God. Can we do it again? And so he asks yet again. Does it sound like he's trying to get out of it? It does, doesn't it? Because maybe he is, all right? Um, but this time it's reversed. The floor is wet. The fleece is dry. It's important to note, this is not a sign of Gideon's faith. This is not a positive for him. It's a sign of unbelief. He's not trusting God to do what he says. And twice he puts God to the test, despite the fact that he's already asked God for a test. But yet God is patient. And God uses Gideon in his weakness, and even in his unbelief. And it's worth pausing there for a moment, isn't it? Thinking about what that says about God and what that says about us. Because it really tells us that God is more interested in preserving a people for himself than his people are 
in preserving themselves. When we are weak, God is patient in our weakness. When we have a lack of trust in God's promises, God goes the extra mile. He humbles himself, becomes obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so maybe in times of flagging faith, it's worth taking your fears to the cross. Maybe there are circumstances in life that are dire and you fear and you think, God doesn't love me. Remember in those times that God promises you forgiveness and eternal life. And he guarantees it. He lays down his life to seal it for you. This is Rajan Mababuni, and he is not an airline pilot. Uh, there's a case of too many pilots on a flight in India recently. Rajan does not enjoy queuing at the airport. Hands up who does. Surely none of us. But he figured out that airline pilots can actually skip the queues at security checks. And so he posed as a Lufthansa pilot, and he went to board early, as he's done before. And in fact, in the past months, he's actually frequently done this. He's skipped the checks quite a number of times. He's even given preferential boarding of the airline. He's had his seat upgraded for free. He even gets his photo taken in the cockpit, where you're not supposed to go. Oh, he's another pilot. Come on here. Captain, Captain Roger. Uh, but in his latest attempt, he was caught out. There was one too many pilots on board, and they found him, and they got him in big, big trouble, because he is not even a pilot anymore. But when you have too many pilots, including one who's a fake pilot, you think trimming the fake pilot off is actually a good idea. Now, we come to Gideon, uh, to Judges, chapter 7. Gideon's mustered an army. It's a huge number, 32,000, but it's whittled down quite drastically. Quite drastically. Look at verse 4 of chapter 7. God says to, to Gideon, there's too many. Take them to the water. Let's see how they drink. And some of them lap the water with their tongue and others kneel down to drink. Now, many will tell us the correct understanding of who God chooses will help us understand the kind of person we should be in serving God. They say, look, there's two kinds of people. There's those who get right down and stick their face in the water, and there are those who bring the water to their mouth. If they bring the water to their mouth, we're told, it's because it shows they are alert. You see how he's got his head up looking for the enemy still? He won't be caught by surprise, we're told. And these ones here clearly undisciplined, prone to the vices of the flesh. And one writer says that God sees how undisciplined they are. God sees they will abandon him for the lures of the, of the flesh. So he chooses only the strong and resolute. And this writer then goes on and says, this is the eternal principle, the eternal divine principle for who should serve God. How's that sound to you? Like a bunch of hogwash, because that's how it sounds to me. It sounds great. It sounds really lovely. Unfortunately, that's not what the Bible says. Especially not in this particular part here with Gideon and his soldiers. There's no basis for this interpretation in the Bible. The text of Judges in no way at all suggests that God is choosing people based on their vigilance and their bravery. Is Gideon brave? No. Has he got a, a, a robust faith? No. He's a coward. In fact, in a couple of verses, God says to him, go spy in the enemy's camp. If you're too chicken to do it, you can take a friend. And Gideon takes a friend, implying he's too chicken to do it, right? So what is God's selection principle? Why, how do we get down to 300 here? Well, have a look in verse 2 of chapter 7. Here is God's selection principle. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. The issue is not victory. That's not in doubt. 
The issue is that Israel might somehow think they did it under their own steam. There's 32,000 of them, right? There's 135,000 of the enemy. Now, that's not great odds, but they might just think we did it ourselves. So God whittles their number down from 32,000 to 300. He says, who's afraid? 22,000. Yeah, that's it. We're out of here. And then there's 10,000 left. Then he says, all right, let's have a drink. 300 of them have a dysfunctional drinking habit. I'm not exactly sure what it is from the text here, but they have a problem. It's quite rare, okay? It's only three out of every hundred of them, right? There's not many of them. Um, it's not because uh, they're glorious. It's not because they're vigilant and alert. It's because God wants to show that he can, he, he's going to demonstrate that he can save the people by his might and his saving power. Now, we've got to remind ourselves here that this is a good reminder for us because we often get tempted to think that we can do it on our own, whether it's serving God under our own might and strength or even thinking about our path to heaven. I spoke to this young bloke at a Christian convention one time, many years ago. And he said to me that he was trying to live a sinless life. Oh, that's a, that's a good thing, isn't it? But he was convinced, he was convinced that if he tried hard enough and put the right disciplines in place, he could live a life that pleased God all of the time. And before we laugh at him, we should wonder, do we ever get trapped in that mentality thinking that our lives are pretty good and God would be pretty happy with us. We're basically good people, aren't we? We're, we're not prone to the vices of many others. And it's tempting to think God sent Jesus to save the lost, but I might have just snuck in anyway. I want us to learn the lesson from these weird water drinkers here in Judges because we desperately need forgiveness in Jesus. We are up against insurmountable odds. God didn't send his precious son into the world if there was some other way to do it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now we come back to uh, Judges chapter 7 verse 9 and we see Gideon. God knows Gideon's afraid. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura your servant. Is Gideon afraid? Verse 11. Then he went down with Pura his servant. Yes, he's afraid, okay? And he hears a dream. I don't know if you heard that as Myra read it out. It's a fairly bizarre dream, and I don't know how it makes a lot of sense, but yet that's the dream. There's two blokes talking in the camp, okay? And they're having a bit of a chit-chat about what one guy dreamed the night before, and the other guy gives the interpretation. The guy says, this is his dream. He says, a bread roll came rolling along and bumped into a tent, and the whole tent fell down. That's the dream. That's weird, okay? And then the other guy says, that's a clear sign that Gideon is going to overthrow us. Because Gideon is well known as a bread roll in the ancient Near East. I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. Um, someone after church this morning at 8 o'clock came to me and said, well, it makes sense because the bread roll is small and the tent's big. Yeah, I've got that bit. That's okay. But the, the whole concept of it, all right? The whole concept of why is there a bread roll and why is it... Okay. It, the point is not the issue. The point is that Gideon gets the reassurance he needs. He's a coward who gets told, okay, God's going to do this. It's going to happen. And so Gideon and his men stand in pathetically small groups, 100 each, and they blow some trumpets and shine their torches, and God does all the heavy lifting. Verse 22. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. You see what happens there? God does all the work. They blow their trumpets, God makes the armies fight themselves, and they get they get crushed. They get whittled down. 
It's not that Gideon's a dynamic leader. I mean, if you look at job ads for, um, for church ministers today, um, often there are, there's, there's a whole bunch of things that they're looking for. Here's just a few of them. Um, they're looking for spiritual leadership, overseeing all ministries, a dynamic preacher who visits everyone house to house, initiates st- strategic leadership, develops vision and implements plans, trains people, engages with the wider community, makes networks, and brings people to the church so that it's full. Now, that's just a few of the items listed in job descriptions for senior pastors. There's a multitude of items. But what would you look for? Maybe some of those? Perhaps we trick ourselves into thinking that a church leader must be dynamic and self-assured and confident and brash and fearless and witty, adventurous, glamorous, popular. The good news is you've got that here. But for most other churches, that's not the case. (laughs) The truth is, the truth of it is here. We're seeing it here, aren't we? Jesus takes uncertain people and strengthens them for the task, doesn't he? He strengthens their hands even in strange ways, even through strange visions of a bread roll on a tent. He gives them strength to stand for him. And he gives you strength to stand for him, maybe in, 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 at work or at home. There was a Scottish pastor in, the, in 1740 called William McCulloch, um, very scholarly, had a knack for languages, could, could translate Hebrew with the best of them. Not a great gift in the pulpit. In fact, his own son said that he was not a very ready speaker, not eloquent, in fact, his manner was slow and cautious. That was his son's uh, generous estimation. Others described him as an ale minister. That is, when he rose to speak, half the congregation left and went to the pub to quench their thirst with an ale. But God uses this guy to bring revival in his hometown. A guy who sat in his study and, and translated Hebrew. What does it take to serve God? Do we need to be dynamic, self-assured, eloquent? Can you serve God in some way? We've got the sign up to serve format at the moment. We're going to push it next year, early next year. But just think about it. How can you help God? There's so many ways that we can serve God in our church. If you want to fill it in today, you can. Just pop it in the box when it comes around. But we look here at Judges. Gideon is called to serve, not because of his greatness, but so that God can show his glory. And there's a mighty victory. They turn on each other. They become a fleeing rabble. Here's a little quick um, outline of the conquest. See, this is where all the people come. They all go back home. That's where the 300 stand. And the enemy run away. They flee in terror. And as they flee, Gideon pursues them. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. There's a problem because they come on the pursuit and the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely. The men of the tribe of Ephraim are not happy. Basically, they are conceited and they want to be preeminent. They think they're strong. Of course, they're overlooking the fact that they didn't stand up to Midian when Midian was actually attacking. Not till they're routed. Suddenly they're strong, right? God's won a great victory. Suddenly they're saying, hey, hey, why didn't God use us? People like that in churches, aren't they? You know, something good is happening, they say, well, why wasn't I included? Why wasn't I told about this? They're angry that God wasn't, that they weren't the ones that God chose to bring about a great act of salvation. It's fairly horrible. When I was a much younger man, my brother and I were, um, were filling up our cars. Um, we, I can't remember what we were doing, but I remember the incident. We were both at the petrol station, and we'd had a bit of a wink-wink, funny gag we were going to do at the petrol station. Okay, We said we'd go in there, and we'd put some petrol in the car. He only needed a small amount. He said, I'll just put five bucks in. 
and I'll go, and then I would go in and pay. And he gave me five dollars, right? So I've walked in and I've engaged the, we're trying to trick the guy at the, um, at the petrol station. And so I've said to the guy, oh, so you know, how do you know how much is in each car? We've got a screen here. Oh, okay. Oh, how much has that guy got? Oh, he's only got five dollars worth. Oh, can I pay it for him? I thought he'd be like, oh, that's really nice of you. He said, yeah, no worries. Took the money and that was it. I thought, wow. I thought I was being fairly generous. Do you think maybe if it had been 20 bucks, he would have been more amazed? 50? Probably. You see, the guy didn't think it was very generous because it probably wasn't. It was $5. We should have thought about our gag a bit more carefully. By the way, you're just seeing how exciting my younger life was. Um, but, but once you know, once you know how much you've been given, once you know how much you've been given, it actually raises your appreciation of the gift, doesn't it? Um, understanding what God has done for us in Jesus should give us a greater appreciation and a, a, a clearer attitude towards him and serving him. His love and grace become more real to us as we understand the enormous debt that he's forgiven. See, the men of Ephraim should have acknowledged that. And the next group that he bumps into should have acknowledged it as well. He, he chases on, verse 4 of chapter 8. Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? See what they say. They're hedging their bets. They don't want to really cast their lot in with what God's doing. They say, oh, hang on here. We'll just see if this works out first before we help you. To think of it in a modern context, it's like seeking security in the world. Okay, yes, God, you've given me Jesus and all, but I'm just going to hedge my bets on that one because I'm not sure if I might need something else. I want to put to you that if you trust in worldly forces to give you prosperity and peace and comfort, then you shouldn't be surprised if another set of worldly forces comes and takes it away from you. Be careful not to hedge your bets. There's no fence sitting with God. If you're not with him, then you've allied yourself with the world, whether or not you admit it to yourself. And so don't be surprised that the things of this world will let you down. They, I guarantee they will. Whatever it is, peace, comfort you're seeking, love, freedom, whatever it might be, you will be disappointed because it cannot deliver. We see here in, in Judges that God's choosing what seems to be weak and helpless to display his strength. Now, we're here. What season is it? Christmas. Is that a good time to remember God sending what is helpless and weak? Why would he come into earth as a baby? He's demonstrating to us, isn't he? How can a baby defend themselves? And King Herod says, well, let's kill all the boys under two. What can he do to stop that? But yet he's saved. And as a grown strong man, when tempted by the devil, he doesn't summon legions of angels to comfort him and pamper him. He's tempted and tested in every way, just as we are, but without sin. And then being the only sinless person ever, he goes to the cross. As if it's not humiliating enough to take on human flesh, to give up his place of ruling in the heavens. As if it's not humiliating to be born as a baby. He then dies the shameful death of the cursed as he is hung on the cross. And he does all this to show his saving power for you and for me and for people like you and me in the nations around us. In weakness, we see God's strength. And things the world thinks is strong, they're not strong at all. 
there's an ad on TV at the moment that um, you might have seen. I find it a desperately sad ad. It's it's supposed to be a sad ad, but I find it sad for other reasons. Um, it's a sad. It's an ad where there's a father and a son, and they're sitting on a bed in hospital talking. I don't know if you've seen the ad. Um, and and the son's asking dad some questions about Christmassy things, and he's like, you know, um, I can't remember all the questions, but one of them he says is, um, how does Santa get around to all the houses at Christmas time? And the dad says, because Santa has magic powers. And they go on a bit, and then. The dad says, um, the, the son says to the father, well, then how come Santa can't cure cancer? And the dad says, I don't know, son. That's an ad for donating to cancer research, which is a great thing to do. Don't get me wrong. But it struck me that here's the world in their strength, medical strength. That's what we laud as one great thing in the world, you know? Where are you going to retire? Somewhere near a good hospital, right? Medical strength. And yet there's things that we just can't resolve. But here's the sad thing about the ad. That's not the sad thing. The sad thing is the music that the advertisers chose to put with the ad. Anyone seen the ad? The music that goes behind it. It's a Christmas carol playing. I doubt the people who made the ad have any idea what they've done. But the carol is Silent Night. And as you get to the end, the crescendo is Jesus, Lord at thy birth. There's no words, but for those who know the words, we're hearing, Dad, why can't Santa cure cancer? Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Here's the one who comes... God's pure love, he can solve all things. Don't worry about that. He can give life beyond the grave. And the pathetic answer in the ad is, I don't know. You see, that is true weakness. God displays his power in weakness, humbling himself. And he wants us to trust in him. To trust in his plan for a new heavens and a new earth. Now, we do see in this judge's passage that we should be careful. The one thing we're going to be careful of is not to be the ones who cause weakness amongst God's people. Like Ephraim, putting themselves first. Why wasn't I included? Like the people from those, those towns. Well, we'll just wait and see if the world's got something better to offer. Don't be that. But apart from that, don't be ashamed of being seen as weak. Because God is strong. And God can save. Let me pray. Father, we do acknowledge that your power is made perfect in weakness and we know that you do use what the world regards as weak to display your strength. Father, help us to be those who find strength in you and help us to serve you in the strength that you give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.